Hey, creative, if you love the show and it has meant a lot to you, could you do me a favor? Would you share it with somebody that you care about? Your friend, your mom, your lover, whoever it is, because podcasts really are spread person to person. And I don't know about you, but the ultimate influencers in my life are my friends and family. So if all of you could share the podcast with just one person, it would make a massive difference in our creative community, grow it, and we can all help support and lift each other up and get toward our dreams even faster. So please, if you have time today and you feel so compelled, share the show with a friend. Oh, also, if you have time, feel free to like pop on over to Apple and leave it a rating and review and a rating on Spotify. Okay. Love you. Do you ever feel like your mind is your enemy? Are you someone who struggles with negative self-talk and thinking? Well, you're in luck because today's guest will help you liberate and redevelop your brain so you can truly unleash. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, and multi-passionate creative. And this show is meant to give you tools to love, trust, and know yourself enough to claim your right to creativity and pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. On the show, we explore the creative process and journey, spirituality, self-development, and mental health. Today's guest is Cara Lowenthal. She's a master certified life coach, feminist mentor, hit podcaster, and soon to be author. She's best known for her podcast, Unfuck Your Brain, which has over 38 million downloads. She also runs The Clutch, which is a feminist coaching community. Both the podcast and The Clutch help women learn and grow to liberate themselves from self doubt, insecurity, and anxiety. I wanted to bring Kara on the show because, number one, she has incredible tools to help you retrain your thoughts and rewrite your limiting beliefs. But on top of her tools, she also has a great story of unleashing. She's a graduate from multiple Ivy Leagues and was on track to become a law professor when she gave it all up to follow the call to become a life coach. She knows how to shed conditioning to go toward your truest self and can help you do it too. So from today's chat, you'll learn what exactly an unfucked brain looks like and how to get one, how to identify identify where you feel stuck and start getting unstuck, how to shed conditioning and take the leap, why preparing for failure is actually a good thing, why resisting your emotions can lead to more bad feelings, and so much more. It's an action-packed show. Okay, now here she is, Kara Lowenthal. I am so honored to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining Unleash and for helping us all unfuck our brains a little bit. It's really something that we need during Mental Health Awareness Month, but always. So thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So how do you define an unfucked brain? Like, how does an unfucked brain function? I don't think there's any such thing as a completely unfucked brain. I always say that I want to be the example of what's possible with a half-managed mind or like a half-unfucked brain. I think there's no way to get our brain back to some sort of like perfect state before society impacted it. And society teaches us lots of useful things too, like what food is safe to eat, wear pants when you go out of the house. <laughs> like there's a lot of socialization we want to keep. But I think for me, what I'm always trying to help women work towards is a like ever going process of being 
more in tune with themselves, more supportive of themselves, with a sort of kinder and more accepting relationship with themselves. So it's more sort of like peeling back layers of an onion where you're never going to get to the center, like the old Tootsie Roll Pops commercial. It's like, how many licks does it take to get to the center of the Tootsie Roll Pop? I might be dating myself here. No, I remember that. Totally. But he ended up always just biting it. I feel like that's what I do. I'm like, I'm going to lick patiently. And I'm like, crunch. And then the tooth chips. That's like the metaphor for my brain. There you go. Yeah, you're like trying to get to perfect. When you let go of the idea that you're ever going to like get to this destination, right? I think so much of like a lot of women come to self, whatever you call it, self-help, self-development, like coach these various things, meditation, yoga, whatever it is. And we're trying to use it as this tool to like fix ourselves to finally feel good enough or feel better. And we have this fantasy that like we're going to be able to do it enough to get to this point where we won't have to have this annoying human experience of sometimes being irritable and sometimes feeling insecure and sometimes feeling lonely and just having a mix of positive and negative emotions. So there's no such thing as unfucking your brain to not have that experience. We're just trying to undo some of the layers of like self-loathing and self-blame and self-shame that women are taught to have. Mm, I love that. That's something we talk about a lot on the podcast when people are like, and then I healed. I'm like, did you though? Or did you get to that next level? And then you had to do the next level. So I love this idea that it's an evolution. And that's something that's hard for me because I can be a very binary thinker. But to know that the gray area is actually what we're shooting for, it's freeing. But I want to talk about how you got to where you are today and where your journey started. I mean, I always am curious to hear, because this is a podcast about pursuing what's on your heart, what did you grow up wanting to be? And then how did that transition? Was it always a lawyer? How did that transition into law? Yeah. I have like 12 threads going in my brain because (laughs) I love that, like sort of the idea that people have healed. They're like, now I'm done. (laughs) Like I've healed. That's not a thing. Welcome to me. It's like saying your body is healed. It's like, well, actually, our cells are all getting shorter and shorter as we go on the inevitable road to death. So like none of us are reaching some pinnacle point of healing, physical or mental or spiritual, where you're like done. Anyway, what did I want to be when I was little growing up? I think when I was little, little, I probably wanted to be a writer or an author, which at the time I would have thought was like poetry or fiction. I now am an author. I have a book coming out next year, but it's a book about my work and self-coaching. But I did think about being a psychologist or working in psychology when I first went to college. It's actually what I was planning to major in. And then I don't even know what happens, like lost the mists of time. I went to Yale and I think the psychology department was like kind of in upheaval for some reason the year I was there. There weren't that many classes. Something was going on. And so I majored in English, like language and literature, because I also loved reading and wanted to be a writer. And then I ended up going into law because I was in the reproductive rights movement. And much like my New York Jewish family, they were kind of like, you could be a lawyer or a doctor. Those were like the two things to do. So I wasn't going to be a doctor. So I went to law school to do reproductive rights law. Um, So it wasn't like I grew up thinking someday I want to be a lawyer. It was more I'm committed to women's liberation. This is the area I was working in and had kind of been focusing on at that point in my life. It was definitely without like I had to get a graduate degree. That was like a family non-negotiable. Right. It's like in this field, what could I do? And so that's why I became a lawyer. It wasn't like law first. It was more like the movement first. And like this is a way I can 
move that movement forward. And I come from a family of lawyers. So that was like both lawyers and doctors, but I never liked science. I like psychological science, but I didn't want to. You don't want to be in a lab, you know, the beakers. I couldn't do any of that. All my family doctors, my sister-in-law's a resident. I would never have survived residency. I like would have died. I need eight hours of sleep at night. Like I just, that was not happening. Yeah. No, it sounds like you made a good choice. And what I love and the wisdom of what you just explained was you found your passion and then you found a profession that led into your passion, which today is the same thing. You're still liberating women. It's just a different way in which you're doing it. You found a purpose and then the passion led into the purpose. But I think sometimes like we think our purpose is like a job. And I love that even at that young age, you had defined, no, it's this bigger thing. And that law is just what happens to be bringing me there right now. I also think you have to decide what your purpose is. This is a place that people get very hung up. Like I coach about this all the time where people are like, well, I just don't know what my purpose is. And then they're like, so I'm waiting for my purpose to find me, hopefully. Like I'm putting out a scent trail and breadcrumbs and I hope my purpose comes along. And like your purpose doesn't find you. It's not like a homing pigeon, you know, like a (laughs) carrier pigeon. It's like a homing device. Like you have to decide what your purpose is. I don't believe that it is like some innate thing that – you're going to like when you stumble on it, you're like, oh, that's my purpose. Like mm-hmm. you decide what your purpose is. Of course, that involves like some reflection on your values, your skills, you know, what you want to create in the world. But so many people get kind of paralyzed and they feel unfulfilled and like their life doesn't have meaning or that their life doesn't have purpose because they see other people who seem to have purpose. And they're like, oh, it's like purpose happened to them and it hasn't happened to me yet. And I don't know how to make it happen to me. But that's exactly the wrong way to think about it. You have to decide, like, what is your purpose? And maybe picking the purpose for your whole life is too big. What's the purpose for your next five years? Maybe it's professional. Maybe it's familial. Maybe it's personal. Maybe it's whatever. But you have to decide what your purpose is going to be short term or long term. Yeah, I love that. If somebody's feeling lost right now and they're like the kind of person who's like waiting for the purpose to drop on their lap, what do you advise them to do on how to kind of like figure out the through line of their life? With the purpose. I wouldn't be looking for a big through line. I think that the reason people think they don't have purpose is what they're waiting for is like this feeling of certainty about the thing to do. They're like, oh, if I knew my purpose, then I would like feel sure and I would feel confident. It's like they have this fantasy of this altered state they would be in if they just knew or found their purpose. Yeah. So I think we have to like let go of all of that, right? What I would say is like come up with three things that matter to you. Like it could be causes. It could be something like you really want a family. You really want to work on to help the environment. You really whatever. It's not something that you necessarily already think you're amazing at or know how to do or anything like that. Like you just have to pick something. And then you can take one of those things and brainstorm what would be five steps to getting that and then try it. Like you have to try it out. It's like people want the purpose to be fully formed. If you look at my life, of course, I can tell you a story. Right. That is like how this purpose built over time. But at the beginning, I didn't know that. I wasn't like, my purpose is liberating women's minds. So first, I'll be a reproductive rights attorney, then I'll become an academic, then I'll quit and become a life coach. I'm sure that's part of this too. It's like hindsight's 2020, right? You can construct the story looking back, but people want to have that whole story in the beginning. And it's just like, think about it like writing a book, right? It's like, yeah, I guess some people do wake up one day and have the whole story in their head and who the characters are and exactly where it's going to go. We talked to lots of writers who were like, no, all I had was just, I heard this one character's voice. So I started like writing with that to see what was happening there. And then that led me to this and that led me to this. And then this other character showed up. If you don't already have a strong feeling about what you want to be doing with your life, you have to just start doing things and get feedback. Like, 
oh, I did try joining Greenpeace and it turns out I didn't like that. Like maybe it needs to be something else. You have to be willing to experiment. It really like so much matters less what you do than that you just do something. Yeah. Get some feedback from it. Make another decision. Well, and I loved, I watched a recent Instagram video you did. I know for sure so many people listening to this podcast, I in many ways feel stuck. And you said there's a story that we have about how we can't change. I can't remember exactly what you said, but like I know for me personally in my head, I'm always thinking I stay too long in unideal situations and then I beat myself up about that. And then I feel like it's impossible to shift. Can you speak a little bit to that? Because I felt like it had a through line with what you were just talking about. Yeah, I think what you're talking about is I think the video you saw is I was talking about the ways in which, especially if we've like started going to therapy or getting into self-help or whatever, we develop a story about our problem and then we start living this identity of that story. So maybe the problem is we keep missing deadlines. That's like the actual factual problem. And then we start telling ourselves a story. I'm a procrastinator. I always do things at the last minute. We start telling the story about like, who we are and how we are. And we think that we're just describing the reality of what's happening. But actually, we're creating now this whole identity and story that makes it impossible to shift. If what's happening is you're always late on deadlines, that's a problem you can try to solve. What makes me late on deadlines? How could I shift it? What could I try? Let me experiment. Once you've got a story that you are just a person who is always late on deadlines, now there's nothing to do. Now this is just the kind of person you are, right? It's like, now I just have brown hair. I'm always late on deadlines. That's who I am. And then we just keep doing it, right? So I think to kind of relate it to what you're talking about, when you have the story about yourself that you are stuck, that feels terrible and you don't know how to get out because it's so vague. Often our stories about ourselves are very kind of vague. It's like, I always do things at the last minute. I'm stuck. They're very black and white, like you said, like everyone who comes to me is black and white thinking. I have a lot of black and white thinking. That's just a symptom of being a perfectionist, right? So for instance, you tell yourself, I always stay in situations too long. When you say that to yourself, number one, we're like, your brain's like, what does that mean? How do I know it's too long? Which situations am I staying too long in, right? That's all, it's not helpful. It's like, you're trying to help yourself. You're trying to name something you want to change. You're hoping that naming it is going to help. But the way you're naming it, I suspect, is not actually helping you change it because you're sort of telling yourself like, well, I'm doing it wrong and I don't know how to do it right. Yeah. So now I'm screwed. So how do you create a new thought about something like that? Like if the thought is I'm stuck and you're spinning out on I'm stuck and then you just keep feeling stuck, what would be the first step to creating a different thought? Well, the first step that we've already done is to get a little more specific. Like, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Some people say I'm stuck and it means like, I want to quit my job. And some people stay mean, yours is still a little vague. So I don't know how much you want to get just coached on yeah. this podcast, but you would go a little more specific, but it means totally different things. So one person might be like, I want to get divorced. And one person might be like, I can't get my business off the ground. And one person might be like, I keep wanting to go to yoga and I don't. So we would have to be like, what does I'm stuck mean? We've gotten like half specific enough with you. Like I stay in unideal situations. That's still pretty vague. But the first thing the person has to do is get really specific. Like what does that mean? So in my past, if I had said that, if I had gotten really specific, it would have been like, I'm stuck because I stay too long in unideal situations because what I'm really saying is I keep dating people that I know I'm not that into because I don't believe that I'm going to find someone. Yeah. Now I have a specific thing that's happening that I can try to work with those thoughts. Now I'm at my specific thought, which is, 
I can't find the kind of relationship I want, which is leading me to this pattern of behavior. See, like, so now we're much more specific. Or if somebody says, like, I'm really stuck in my business, I have my side business and I really want to take it full time, but I feel stuck, like I can't do it, whatever. So then I would be like, okay, what does that mean you're stuck? Like, what is the thing that's not happening? Mm. What is the thing you're not doing? We have to get down a couple of levels. And so for that person, it might be like, well, I'm making X amount every month, but I just can't make more than that. So I can't leave my job. So I'm like, okay, now we know the problem thought we have is I can't make more than X. So now we have to like work on that thought. So it's almost always, especially when you're just starting to coach yourself or even getting coached, get super specific. People come in to get coached and they're like, I just have low self-worth. And I'm like, yeah, all of us have low (laughs) self-worth. Yes. You probably don't think you're worthy on some level. I agree. But like we can't coach on that. It's too high up. That's like being like, I want to run a marathon. You're like, okay, but you haven't even walked a 5K. Like we got to get specific. So for all of you who are listening, all your listeners, for you, get really concrete. It's like, don't try to coach yourself on, I'm stuck. I always stay in situations too long. Like, what is the current or last situation where you're staying too long? Why were you staying too long? What were your exact thoughts about the situation? And then how can you start working on shifting those thoughts? That's obviously how to shift thoughts is a whole like process you have to learn. I have a podcast episode called The Thought Ladder people can listen to or they can sign up for the waitlist for The Clutch, which is my coaching community. But before you can change anything, you got to be really specifically aware of like, what am I thinking? Mm. I'm stuck is just like a 70,000 foot thought. What does it mean? Right? We don't know. We can't do anything with it. Yeah. And it's almost like we keep those thoughts vague so we don't have to deal with them and we can just keep torturing ourselves endlessly. Well, we don't think we know how to solve the problem. Yeah. So we don't want to look at it. Right. And when it's not specific, there's no way to solve it because what, to your point, what does that even mean? So I do want to circle back to your story because I think it's incredible. I mean, you're in a multi-Ivy League, high achiever. You went to Harvard (laughs) Law. You worked multiple big jobs after and you quit to become a master life coach. Not even. I quit to just become a regular life coach first. I wasn't even a master life coach at first. Yeah. (laughs) So even bigger. (laughs) And you've even talked about how like people in your family were like, what? And you're like, yeah, I know. I'm going to try to figure it out. (laughs) Tell me what built up to that and then how you took the leap. Like I said, I'd always been interested in psychology. So even though I went into law, like at Harvard, you had to write kind of like a thesis, like a big second year paper in the law school. And mine was about narrative therapy and restorative justice. I was like still very focused on like what are people's thoughts and how are they thinking? Like even though I was doing reproductive rights work, my actual intellectual interest was always kind of in this like how do people think about themselves? How does that impact? Like the paper was all about like the stories people tell themselves about the relationships they're in and like how can we use psychology to rehabilitate people? So in my personal life, I was like going to therapy and like trying out working with coaches and yoga and meditation. I was like doing all those things. Not so much from a, like, I'm not, like, the spiritual secret type. It was more of the type A, like, I'm going to fix myself. Like, society tells me all these things that are wrong with me, and I'm happy, which, like, now I'm like, yeah, I was having the human experience. But I thought I was supposed to be happy all the time, which is what we're told. So I was doing all of those things and trying a lot of different modalities and a lot of different ways of trying to feel better or fix myself. And I was having the experience that I think primes a lot of us for this work, which is, like, You keep hitting the accomplishments that you were trying to hit and you don't really feel any better or any different. So like get to Harvard Law School and you're like, oh, I still don't feel competent and smart. And then like get the appellate clerkship. That's really hard to get, especially if like I didn't do law review. That was a big deal. Like 
still don't feel it. Then I got like the one reproductive rights fellowship in the country my year because I was coming after the 2008 recession. And like, I think getting primed to be open to the idea that perhaps I wasn't going to be able to accomplish my problem away. And then I, you know, like some combination of those experiences being more open to it, exploring the world of coaching and then... I found the type of coaching that I teach, which I learned from my teacher, Brooke Castillo, at the Life Coach School, which is sort of very cognitively focused, like kind of based on an elaboration of some of the premises of cognitive behavioral psychology. And that just like blew my mind. I mean, I felt like nobody had ever suggested to me that your thoughts cause your feelings before. I'm sure the poor therapist that I saw in my 20s for a while is like, I told you that every day. Like, I'm sure that she told me, but I don't know. I, you know, I hadn't been able to hear it. So I found this kind of coaching and I was just using it on myself. I was like on the track to becoming a law professor. I wasn't trying to become a life coach. That was not (laughs) in my life plan. So I was like running a think tank. I was on the path to become a law professor. But it was like so powerful and really so life-changing for me. Not in a then my life was perfect and I was happy all the time way, but just in a like, oh, I can actually determine how I'm going to think and feel about something. I'm somebody who had like a very active brain and had always felt at its mercy, Mm -hmm. right? It was just sort of like, you get up in the morning, you're like, I hope my brain is not gonna make me feel terrible today. But like, of course, it always did. And then it felt like I woke up and was like, had a revelation of, I'm gonna become a life coach, and I'm gonna coach lawyers. But I've told the story before, like, six months later, I was talking to a good friend who I only saw occasionally. And I was like, news you're not gonna believe I'm doing this thing. And she was like, you've been joking about becoming a life coach for years. And I like realized that was true. Like it had been like coming out sideways because I couldn't acknowledge it. So who knows how long I really had wanted to do it. And then in terms of how I did it, I just felt really terrible and did it anyway. Like it's a perfect example. I wasn't like, ah, my life's purpose. Now I feel totally confident, very sure this is a good idea and have no worries. That is not how I felt. I felt like I was going to throw up all the time. Everybody around me thought it was an insane idea, which I don't blame them at all. It did sound insane. And Nobody told me it was a good idea, really, other than probably my teacher who I'd paid for coaching certification. So I think that's a perfect example of how it's not like I was like, oh, this is my purpose. And now I feel so sure. It's like, yeah, now I feel sure because I've decided it is my purpose eight years later after doing it for now. Maybe I'm going to decide in five years my purpose is to run a restaurant. I don't know. But the way I did it was just to be scared and do it anyway. It's not exactly like people hear that and I think they think it means like be panicked and push through. That's not what it is. I was working on my thoughts the whole time. Yeah. But I had to be willing to feel some of fear. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's just no way to completely change your life like that and not have some concerns. Right. I mean, I think when you're a high achieving person, it's easy to feel, though, like you have to have every single little thing figured out before you take a leap like that. And I know I've heard you talk about if we wait until we're ready or know everything, we'll never do anything. So what is the balance between like planning appropriately and knowing that you're going to feel scared shitless and still doing something? Wouldn't it be awesome if I could be like, it's 37%. Yeah, it would be great. That's what I'm looking for. If I could give you an equation, if I could be like, well, if X is fear and Y is money in the bank and Z is decisions, just do this equation. I think the thing that changed it for me was learning from my teacher, something that, you know, I teach now, which is that we believe that whether or not we succeed is happening to us. Mm -hmm. But in fact, we are creating our success in the way we're thinking. So we all, everybody, even me still now, want evidence that something will work before we try it. And we want to wait for that to happen. We're like, well, I'll try a little. And if it works, then I'll believe it can work. But you can't do something big that way. I mean, if you just think about any of the big things humans have ever done, 
the first person who wanted to fly a plane, the people who built the pyramids, the first person to invent electricity. Like you have to have faith in a vision and be willing to believe it's possible even when you're failing along the way. So I had to do a lot of work around that. It doesn't mean that you're not nervous or afraid, but you know, it's like we want the world to prove to us that it's okay to take a risk by guaranteeing the result. And that's not how it works. Like your success is not this predetermined thing that you can find out now, well, am I going to succeed or fail? I want a dispatch from the future to tell me and then I'll know whether to do it. Your success or failure is created by your willingness to try even though you don't have the evidence yet. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like we want like a preview as if it's already decided, but it's not decided. It's what you do that's going to decide it. So from what you're saying, I'm gathering the work you did prior to taking this leap was much more mental than being like, I'm going to yes. do A, B, C, and D. So what would you say was the most important thought you rewired in order to take this leap? Like what sort of a conditioning did you have oh to God. undo? I don't think there's just one. Oh, well, feel free to share as many as you have. <laughs> I think really what I just talked about, like yeah. I was a perfectionist and a perfectionist, the way I define it is like not somebody who's perfect. It's someone who thinks they're supposed to be perfect and doesn't think anything's good enough if it's not perfect, which is most of us. I think it was really that. I mean, I just – I came from law where – it's not that there's always like a right answer because in real life in law, it's actually a system where like people are arguing and somebody decides and it's not actually objectively right or wrong. But the way you're taught law is a lot of like there's a right answer. You have to like know what's going to happen. You have to plan 12 steps down the line. If you ever get anything wrong, then that's malpractice and you can be sued. So even though in the real world, law is just kind of a lot of power and argument jockeying, the way it's taught is like very, there's a right answer. You have to get it. If you get it wrong, you're bad and stupid and you're going to fail. So I really wanted to know that it was going to work. I wanted to have see all the steps and know why they would work. And if you'd asked me beforehand, if I'd been able to articulate it, what I would have said was like, I need to know it's going to work in order to do it. And then the new thought was, I have to do it in order to know if it's going to work. Ooh, yes. I cannot wait for evidence to make me believe. I have to believe and then I'm going to create evidence that it will work. I mean, my business plan was like, okay, I'm going to coach for six weeks and this is how much it costs and it's going to be lawyers. Like, that's the business plan. And that was enough. But I got a lot of coaching on and... I'm always coaching other people on and the like desire to know all the steps. And I definitely got coached a lot on me being like, okay, but what's like the 14th step? And my teacher being like, just do step two. Like, we don't know what the 14th step is. You have to be willing to try step two and see what happens. Yeah. I think that's my biggest hang up. I relate so much to your story. And of course, I'm asking you questions like, what is step 14, though? Can you give an exact guide? <laughs> of course. But that's always what happens. But here's the thing for you and all your listeners to know. Really what we're afraid of is – I know this doesn't sound true. It didn't sound true to me at first, but it is true. Really what we're afraid of is how we're going to feel if something doesn't work. Yeah. That is really what we're afraid of. Even with big things. Like people are always like, yeah, but what about if you get fired and you lose your home? And I'm like, yeah, what if that happens? Then what? What are you going to be thinking and feeling? And they're like, that I'm a failure, that I can't get my life together and I don't deserve to blah, blah, whatever. And then, of course, like, that's going to lead to a certain set of actions. Like, the things that we are afraid of, even when they're big life things, what we're afraid of is the feeling we're going to have, the feeling of helplessness, the feeling of failure, what we're going to say to ourselves, that feeling of hopelessness. Like, that's what we're really afraid of. 
humans are incredibly resilient and can figure out a lot of shit when they believe that they can figure something out. Like people are incredibly resourceful. You look all around the world and there are people, you know, creating lives and thriving in like unbelievable conditions and in response to unbelievable horrors. And that doesn't, you know, we should also fix the world. It's not to say that we don't need to solve the world's problems. But I think that we really don't understand what we are afraid of, especially when we're dealing with something like, I feel stuck because I'm afraid to take my side business full time. Like, it's actually not life or death most of the time. It's actually our fear of failure and our fear of shame and what we're going to say to ourselves. So that is the part you, like, have to work on also as well. It's both being willing to try, but it's also like, and when it fails, what am I going to say to myself? A lot of the reason we get stuck is that we're paralyzed by thinking, like, what if it fails? What if I fail? If I don't find someone right away again? What if prospective client says no, whatever. And the best way out of that is just to assume you're going to fail at first and decide ahead of time what to think about it. So that you're not like, I can't put my foot in the water unless it's cold. So I'm just gonna stay here forever trying to convince myself that it won't be cold as opposed to being like, it's gonna be really cold and feel horrible. Let's just assume that. Now what happens after that? Yeah, I actually think that sounds extremely true. And I know for sure that's what's stopping me. I also think that I've had some disappointments in the past that I've rebranded as failures. You spoke about this. I think it was on a podcast. I listened to so much of your stuff. I don't know which is which. (laughs) But um, you spoke about like if somebody went out, they were a new driver, they got into some sort of collision or they made some sort of mistake driving, would they drive home and then never take the car out ever again? And no, of course not. You would try to drive again. But I think so many of us conduct our lives that way and... I guess if somebody has this fear of failure, you said the best thing to do is think about what will happen if they fail. Should they also be thinking about what would happen if they succeed? I mean, yes, but I think that when you are paralyzed by fear of failure, it's much more important to go to that place. But it's not just imagine failing. It's when you imagine failing, pay attention. What do you imagine you'll be thinking about yourself? And then that we need to work on changing that thought so that the idea of failure is not quite so terrifying. That's why I said earlier, like, do it scared doesn't mean you're paralyzed by terror and you're supposed to force yourself through anyway. Like, that's not how your nervous system works. Do it even though you're afraid means like you've done enough work to be like, okay, when I hit failure, I'm at least going to be aware of how I'm talking to myself and try to not kick myself while I'm down. Like, whatever it is, I've prepared this thought I'm going to practice. Like, you may still feel fear, but the sort of paralyzing fear is there because of the anticipation of how you're going to be feeling and thinking. And so you have to prep ahead of time, like literally practice thoughts. Like, you know, when I was starting this and I had to start doing console calls for new clients, it was like I had to be practicing thoughts. Like probably a lot of people are going to say no. It's like, what am I going to say to myself when someone says no? Am I going to let my unmanaged mind say, see, this is never going to work. You made a horrible mistake. You left your career. Now you're not going to have a job. This business is going to fail. Everyone's going to laugh. Am I going to let all that just run unmanaged? Or am I going to decide ahead of time and practice a thought that's like, it's normal to fail a lot when you're starting a new business. Lots of people succeed even after some failure up front, like whatever it's going to be. I have to come up with something to practice to make it less scary to try. So could we go through the steps of changing a thought, like from the bad thought that you don't want anymore to, I know you say then like having a neutral thought and then into the positive. Do you want to give me an example? Like what's a thought you'd like to change? At some point, I would like to take the leap and go into entrepreneurship full time. If I do that, then 
what if I fail? And what if it was like the worst mistake of my life and I end up with nothing? Okay. So anytime we're asking ourselves, we have a thought where we're like asking ourselves a question, quote unquote, it's never really a question. Uh Right. So when you say to yourself, like, what if it's the worst decision ever? What that means is you're already thinking it might be the worst decision ever. So let's pick one of those thoughts. That was like three thoughts. Which of those thoughts do you feel is like the most? I think what if I fail is for sure the scariest thing because that kind of encapsulates everything. Yeah. So the kind of non-question version of that would be I might fail. Mm -hmm. We could work on a new thought for that, but I kind of want to take it one level down, which is what's going to happen if you fail? I'm scared I won't be able to take care of myself and I'm going to be destitute. Okay. So if I fail being an entrepreneur, what does take care of myself mean? I won't be able to pay my bills? Yeah. So I'm going to teach you the thought process, but I just want to point out coaching-wise, just notice the black and white thinking. Uh-huh. Like the way we think about it, we're like, well, I'd go from one minute fine to the next minute failing and destitute. And there would be no point along the way where I could like intervene, make a different decision or try something else. Yeah. Your brain is like straight from like, I try and then I'm living under the bridge, which so many people have this. Yes. I'll teach you the thoughts. Like, I just want to coach you for a minute. In reality, let's say you went out on as an entrepreneur and then... You didn't bring in the income that you wanted to in the time period you wanted to. What would you actually do? Would you just lie down and give up and then end up under the bridge? No, I would try something else. I would maybe try doing a new thing in my business or I would find a part-time job. Like there's so many things I could do. But how do you feel when you think that? Relief, but (laughs) there's still a part of me that wants to go back. But no, 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 no. You could also end up dead. Of course. Like this happens whenever I coach people and they're like, Okay, but I do still have the old thought. And I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, I just taught you this new one 10 seconds ago. Like, (laughs) it's not a lobotomy, right? You have to practice that new thought. Yeah. Like right there, that's changing a thought, right? I used to say to myself all the time, like, if this doesn't work, I can go back to law. Right. Right. I'm sure I could get another job. Like, I could always go back. And in my business, every time I change my business, and if I want to freak out, I mean, at this point, I don't freak out that much anymore. But for a while, I did. And I would change things in the business. And I'd always be like... Okay, like I changed from doing just one-on-one coaching to a group and then from a group to a membership. And each time when I was freaking out, I was like, this doesn't work. We can always go back. Right. Like it's not final. So now that if you know that that thought helps you, now your job is to practice that thought all the time. All of your listeners, you, all of us, we need to understand how the brain works. You cannot stop thinking a thing. You have to start thinking something else. Ah. When you have a pattern, a thought pattern, like a deep one especially – It's literally, it's a neural network. Like neurons in your brain have wired together. They like having that thought. Your brain likes to be efficient. It's like your brain knit you this very uncomfortable cardigan. And you're like, I don't want to wear that. And your brain's like, but I worked so hard on it. Try it on. Try it on. Remember the cardigan? Do you want to wear the cardigan? Try it on. It doesn't just disappear. So you have to consciously be practicing the new thought. The more you practice it, the more literally you're training the neurons in your brain to connect on that new pathway over time, that becomes the superhighway and the other road like gets grown over and you don't drive down it so much. And what do you do when the other road comes up? Do you just keep practicing? You're just like, I know, brain. Thanks for trying to protect me. Here's my new thought I'm thinking. Yes. I recommend you practice your new thought ahead of time. Like just even when you're not thinking the other thought, it's like make it your password. Set a reminder to practice it. Write it down a couple of times a day. Literally just think it to yourself as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But yeah, your brain will offer the old thought. Think about it like you're, I don't like I have a Jewish grandmother who's always offering me food I don't want. Yeah. It doesn't matter if I already said no. Like, no, I don't want that. 10 minutes later, she's like, do you want some melon though? 
It's just like that. I'm not like, no, grandma. Ah! I'm like, smack it away and scream, Aww. right? Of course not. I'm just like, no, thanks, grandma. Like, same thing. You can have that relationship with your brain. It takes work and practice. But yeah, your brain is like, but what if you die and you're destitute? And you have to be like, I know, brain. I know you're very worried about that. But remember, that's not going to happen because you don't actually just wake up one morning destitute. There's a long pathway during which I can like adapt or get a job or like handle things as they come up. It's always a sign of black and white thinking when we're like, well, just there'd be this moment it didn't work and then my life was over. Yeah. It's like that doesn't make any sense. That's not how things work. Right. And does it help to make a literal list of all the thoughts that you have that you don't like or you don't feel are helpful? Yeah. I mean, I, if you start doing this as like a way of life, you spend a lot of time writing down your thoughts and then coming up with new thoughts to replace them. But you can't work on everything all at once and you really don't need to. Like you work on one thing. So if like this is your big thing, just work on this for now. Like you can work on other stuff later. That whole being in a rush to do it all, fix all the things is that same symptom of kind of this belief of like, well, I'll just get to the perfect place and then I'll feel amazing forever. Yeah. You're always going to have positive and negative emotion. You're always going to have the human experience. So if your big thing is wanting to take that jump and feeling stuck, then I would just be constantly practicing this thought of like, I'm not going to end up destitute, whatever your version of it is, because like I'm resourceful and I'll always figure something out. Like for you, it sounds like maybe you need to practice something that's sort of like along the way, I'll have lots of opportunities to like get feedback about what's working and change or take a job or like basically believing you can take care of yourself. Right. That thought I can't take care of myself is like very oh scary sounding. Terrifying. So that's the piece I would really be working on. Like I absolutely can take care of myself. You know, if I fail or if something goes wrong or whatever, I will know what to do. I will figure it out. You don't have to believe that you know what will happen. What you have to believe is I can figure out what to do if something happens. That's beautiful. And that's something that I have learned from doing the show because I first started out being like, I'm going to teach people how to be creative. And then I was like, actually... I really want to provide people, including myself, with tools on how to love, trust, and know themselves. Because mm -hmm. I think unless we're working toward that, it's pretty impossible to fully unleash. So what you're talking about right now sounds like self-trust, which is something I really struggle yeah. with. How do we start to build self-trust? It's actually like a microcosm of everything we talked about. First of all, what does that mean, right? When we just say, I don't know if I trust myself. I'm like, trust yourself to what? Like pick lunch? pick a partner, make financial decisions, like what are we talking about, right? So you have to get really specific about what it means to trust ourselves. And I think often what we mean is I don't trust myself to know the right answer and predict the future. That's a completely unreasonable standard. You can't trust anybody to do that. So we have to like really redefine what does that even mean to trust ourselves. For me, actually, what it means is like I'm going to do my best to be my own friend and not kick myself when I'm down. That's really the bottom line for me of like self-trust. I don't know that I'll always make the quote unquote right decision. What does that even mean? I'm the one who decides if it's the right decision based on the outcome. It's all a ventriloquist game. Like it's all my own thoughts. But when we say I don't trust myself, we generally mean I made decisions in the past and then I felt unhappy and then I blamed it on the decision and now I think I make bad decisions and I can't trust myself. So this is like a huge thing to unravel that can't do all in this episode, but getting really specific, what are you trying to trust yourself to do? And then you got to see, is that actually a reasonable thing to want to trust yourself to do? To always make the right decision, to know what the right thing is, to always like do a thing that always leads to a good outcome. Like these are not reasonable criteria. Yeah. Right. If you were trying to hire somebody and you were like, here's what you need. Be successful in this job. I'd be like, that's a toxic workplace. <laughs> 
Yeah, right. You have to always know the right decision. You can never make a mistake. And if you take any actions that 12 steps down the line, anything goes wrong, then I don't trust you and you're fired. That's an amazing framework. If the job description of your mind would be something you'd consider a toxic workplace, then it's probably time to rewire. Yeah. Or if the way that you talk to yourself is like an abusive relationship. Yeah. When we're constantly telling ourselves we get everything wrong, you always do this wrong, you're never going to figure it out, you can't take care of yourself, you're stupid and ugly and boring, whatever, all the shit we say to ourselves, completely abusive if somebody else was saying it to us. You talk about not having an agenda with yourself, but instead always being curious. What does that mean and why is it so important? Hi, creative. I want to tell you about a podcast I love called Tom Meets Interesting People. The podcast is hosted by Tom Sanderson and is on the Good Pods Top 100 Indie Documentary Charts. What I love about the show is that it introduces you to some of the most fascinating folks out there. Each episode is a deep dive into the work, projects, and processes of Tom's amazing guests, who range from voice actors, nuclear engineers, and everyone in between. Tom doesn't just ask the usual questions. He's all about practical insights and entertaining stories that will leave you inspired and informed. Whether you're an aspiring artist, an entrepreneur, or just someone who loves learning about the world, you'll find something interesting in every episode. If you ever wanted to know how to talk someone down in a hostage situation— run a successful Twitch stream, or train a dog like a pro, then this is the podcast for you. Season three is out now. The first episode is with Arielle Nissenblatt, and it's about how to make your podcast succeed. Right up my alley. So join me and check out Tom Meets Interesting People on Spotify, YouTube, Good Pods, or wherever good podcasts are found. Yeah, so just what you described, right? Just what we were talking about. When you are abusive with yourself, have unrealistic standards for yourself, whatever they are, you can't actually change the way you're thinking because you're not actually being curious, right? You're being judgmental. So when we have an agenda, we're like, okay, I'm willing to try to coach myself to make myself always make the right decision. Or like, I'm going to like coach myself so that I can finally be perfect or whatever. It's like, you're not actually being curious about what's going on in your brain, right? You have an agenda. Or like if somebody's like, okay, I want to like learn about my emotional eating to make sure that I lose weight. It's like, you're not actually being curious about what's going on with you. You have an agenda that you're just trying to use like these tools of self-inquiry to get a certain outcome. And that's kind of the opposite. It's like, it would be bad science. If you're trying to do an experiment and you're like, but it has to come out a certain way or else this experiment is ruined and terrible. Like you're not actually going to discover anything. So when you judge yourself, you actually can't be curious because essentially when you judge yourself, you are creating a physical sensation of an emotion in your body that is usually shame. Shame, humans generally want to avoid if at all possible, which is why we don't take risks or we zone out on Netflix or we get drunk or whatever to not feel shame. So kind of by definition, if you're like, let me open this curtain and look at my thoughts and you punch yourself in the face, you're going to stop opening the curtain. So you're never going to learn what's inside the room. So you have to be willing to practice not punching yourself in the face. And that takes work. The first 12 times, you're still going to punch yourself in the face. And afterwards, you'll be like, oh, damn it, I punched myself in the face again. And then like the next 12 times, and 12 is not a guarantee. It could be five. It could be 40. (laughs) How could you? (laughs) The next 12 times, you're going to like start to punch yourself and be like, oh, wait, I'm doing it. I'm punching myself in the face. Wait, let me try to stop. Like it takes practice. But that's really what I mean. You can't learn about yourself or be curious Mm -hmm. when you have this agenda of like, either I have to change this thing about myself immediately to feel okay, or I'm a bad person and I'm like looking for proof of that. When you're curious, you'll be able to change. Also, you'll never change without actually understanding your own brain. 
I love that advice. Something really fun that I also do is like, I'll have this thing where I'm like, I'm going to be enlightened. I'm going to like go for it. I'm going to do the thing, whatever it is. Yeah. I'm going to like really try to, you know, like I'm just going to be at peace, whatever it is. And then I make that decision and I feel good for like five minutes. And then I'm like, why didn't it work? So I panic in between. It's so weird. I think it'd be awesome if we could all just be like, I'm going to be enlightened now. And then we just felt peaceful forever. That'd be amazing. But I would not have a business. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's also, again, like you said, that's not how humans work. That's not how life works. I know that mentally it's somewhere, but it goes away the minute I decide something. What advice do you have for those of us that are like intolerant to discomfort or to the unknown? Yeah. So those are, I mean, those are two big different things, but let me try to do like a lightning round on each of those. In terms of like discomfort, learning how to experience instead of resist your emotions is like a thing that everyone needs to learn. It takes a lot of practice and there's a lot of different ways to do that. You can work with a therapist, with a coach. There's like somatic practitioners. Some people use meditation. But since we're not really taught how to have negative emotions and we are basically taught that they're bad, like think about when you're growing up, like your well-meaning caregivers are often like, don't feel sad or like, don't be angry or don't, you're like, you're being told not to have your emotions. So you start to associate your emotions with like rejection from your caregivers or that there's something bad in you. They're not supposed to be there. When you believe that your emotion is bad or shouldn't be there, you actually are activating your like flight or fright response to having an emotion. So you have an emotion and then your brain is like, ah, there's a lion inside our head, ah, and freaks out. So what we think is just a feeling, like what we think is anxiety, for most of us, if we haven't learned this, is actually 30% just anxiety and 70% a freak out about having anxiety. It's like the volume has been turned up from like the green zone, which is like people have emotions and they pass and it's actually okay to like danger, danger, freak out. So learning how to be okay with discomfort, we do have to learn to be okay with discomfort. But if you're resisting your emotions, you're actually experiencing much more discomfort than you need to. You can actually reduce it by learning how to allow a feeling to be in your body without trying to push it away or get rid of it, Mm. which is like a whole process. But That's discomfort. Uncertainty. I mean, they're related because why don't we like uncertainty? Just because we feel anxious. Uncertainty is just a word humans made up. Like what we don't like is the feeling in our body of anxiety. So it's really actually the same advice, which is like we have to learn how to gradually, degree by degree, turn down our resistance. And what you find then is that like emotions are just not as big of a deal. They don't last as long. They're not as intense. A lot of what we experience is our resistance to it. Like we start to feel a tiny bit lonely and then we like freak out about that and then we have a whole story about it and how we are going to die alone and nobody has ever loved. Like all of that is what's so painful. The actual like emotion of loneliness would probably pass in a few minutes. So true. Outside of this, I also write music and I have a song about this very thing and my lyric for the chorus is, in my head I can write an award-winning screenplay of words you've never said and you'll never say. I'm so creative. You know, but it's like, If I could instead just breathe through it and be present with how I'm feeling, then it wouldn't ever go on that spiral. What if you could use that creativity to find like more and more creative ways to be nice to yourself? I think that that's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) I should be a life coach. I think that's something I should definitely try. I want to ask you about this like fascinating thing you said. I listened to the Chatty Broads podcast that you did a few years ago. And you said this quote that fascinated me. And I want to know more about what it means. So you said, I used to take a lot of pride in how sensitive I was. But it's not a spiritual calling. 
It's just emotional dysfunction that you don't know how to manage. What does that mean? It means that I used to feel everything at a 12. And I told myself that's because I was just such a sensitive person. And I just was like so deeply feeling about life. And actually, it was because I was resisting all my emotions and I had no emotional resilience or regulation. So if you're not managing your mind and you resist all your emotions, everything is very intense and up and down all the time because you wake up and your brain is like, well, I hate how we look today. You're disgusting. You'll never find love. Now we have like all this emotion and then we start to feel anxious or sad or whatever. Then we're like, oh my God, I don't want to feel this. I can't like... That was all the up and down. Everything was so sensitized because I was basically constantly living in like a state of chronic emotional stress, which makes everything feel heightened. And then I was not willing to have any of my emotions. So I remember very clearly having a conversation with myself where I was like, well, I've always associated being happy with kind of stupid people, but I think I'm willing to try it. I mean, I grew up in like a New York Jewish family where it's sort of like, if you're happy, then probably it's like you're not paying attention, you know, or like, yeah, it's only dumb people are really happy. And I really had to be like, I think I'm willing. I'm willing to like, I'm willing to try it. Maybe I'm going to get dumber. I don't know. But I was very attached to that identity. But it turned out I still feel things deeply, but it's just very different. It's like being knocked over by torrential rushing muddy waters or like a clear stream. Like I'll like cry at a movie now. I never used to be moved by kind of anything else because I was so in my own stuff all the time. And now like I'll feel really sad for five minutes and cry at a movie and then emotions can pass through you. I mean, there's research showing that basically if you don't prolong it, the life of an emotion in your body is like 90 seconds. Wow. It's our thinking that like prolongs it and keeps bringing it up. And that's not always a problem. Like if somebody close to me dies, I want to feel grief about that. I'm not trying to become a robot. But life gives you enough stuff to have true emotion about. Like you don't need to be constantly manufacturing more with your own brain. Totally. I mean, speaking of grief, there is another post you did that I just loved where you talked about how sometimes we need to be able to grieve the life that we wanted and couldn't have or chose not to have for whatever reason. Can you speak to why that's so important? Yeah, I think that this kind of goes to one of the themes that we've been talking about this whole time, which is we have this fantasy that we're always supposed to be happy. And so if you ever feel like sad about a road not taken or a different version of your life. We think that means, oh my God, I made the wrong decision. And now I've done it wrong. I would have been happy all the time if I'd done that thing. But now here I am having the human experience. I don't like this. We make it mean so much because we're so afraid of emotions and we create a whole story when they happen, then we're not willing to have them. So for me, the sort of grief at lives not lived is like, especially as you get older and you start making decisions that really do like affect the course of your life. You know, the thing I talked about in the podcast a lot was like choosing to kind of commit to my partner who has two small children from a previous marriage. It means like we have to live in Brooklyn for the next 13 years. We have children half the week when I didn't have my own children on purpose. I was didn't want children originally. I chose that and I feel good about that choice. And I went through a grieving process of like the life that I thought I was going to have, which was like very kind of child free and independent. I thought I was going to find a partner like that and we were going to travel the world all the time and not be raising children. And there are amazing things about this life that I wouldn't have had. But in order to really be able to like appreciate them and be all in on it, I had to really go through this process of allowing myself to feel sad. I mean, that life was a fantasy. I don't know what would have happened. Maybe I would have like met the person for that life and we'd go on our first trip and then the plane would crash. Like it's all made up, but it was real to me. And so I think when we allow ourselves to grieve, then we can really be all in. Like I went through that process And so now I'm all in on this life and I don't have this kind of constant like, 
oh, maybe I made the wrong decision. And like, maybe I would have been perfectly happy there. You know, it's like I went through that experience. So I just think allowing ourselves to grieve for whatever, a relationship that ends, a job that ends, somebody passes away, we move. It's like you have many different lives and it's okay to feel grief. But the problem becomes when we start telling ourselves a story about that grief, it's like almost always the problem is not the emotion. The problem is the story we make up about what the emotion means about our past decisions or our future ability to be happy. That's when we get into trouble. Yeah. And it's kind of like with the emotions that we talked about, like the more you repress how you're actually feeling or that you were longing for that thing, the more it looms and gives meaning to your life. Yeah. Right. Then you develop this whole narrative about how you made the wrong decision. And if only 30 years ago you moved to Paris, then you now you'd be happy forever. And it's like all nonsense. Yeah. Our brains are truly remarkable. There's just it's so, so much, much going on going there. On. Just so much. They just used to use so much energy to stay alive every day. And now they don't have a lot to do, most of us. So our brains just need a direction. <laughs> I often describe it as like a puppy that you have in house trained. Yeah. It's like it just has a lot of energy. It's supposed to be running around outside. And like if you put it in a crate and don't give it enough stimulation, it's going to tear up your house. I like that. You know, if I think of my brain like a puppy, it really gives me some compassion. Yeah. You're just like, oh, honey, I'm sorry. I like didn't let you run around today. You know, I haven't taught you what to do. So of course you ate the carpet. I could talk to you forever. You have so much wisdom. I have to like very firmly suggest that everybody goes and listens to your podcast, Unfuck Your Brain, immediately. It's so easy to binge. I listened in the past week to like seven episodes and I'm going to continue to do so over the weekend. Just incredible content you're giving out. I know The Clutch, there's currently a wait list for it, but people get on it. From what I've heard, it's very affordable, incredible, life-changing tool and group to work. And I just, I think the world of you. My final question is because I've been talking about self-love on this show and in my life for years now, but I think I don't know what it is. What is self-love? I think this is a great question and it's very unclear. Nobody knows what it is. And people act like it's a destination they're going to get to. And then they're trying to do it perfectly and get there perfectly. Self-love It's just a relationship with yourself, just like your relationship with anybody else. I mean, I wouldn't say like we have to get to self-love. It's like self-love is just your relationship with yourself. How do you talk to yourself? How do you treat yourself? Like, do you support yourself? Are you a friend to yourself? Are you an enemy to yourself? Do you punch yourself in the face all the time? When you think about it just as a relationship, it's like any other relationship. I love my partner. That doesn't mean that every thought I have about him is positive. And if I have a negative thought about him, I'm not like, oh my God, I failed at loving him. I'm just like, this is part of a long-term relationship. Sometimes you feel amazing. And sometimes you're like, if you don't stop chewing, I'm going to murder you. And if that term isn't useful for people, then don't use it. It's about your relationship with yourself. Like women are encouraged to fixate on their relationships with everybody else in their lives and to neglect their relationship with themselves. You are the longest relationship you're going to have. You are the person you're going to spend the most time with. And most of us are crueler to ourselves than we are to anybody else in our lives. So self-love is just the relationship you have with yourself, which is something you are always going to be in. And can always be, let's just say, paying attention to, like Mm. bringing awareness to, paying attention to, like I said to you, like use your creativity about how could you be kinder to yourself. When we use it in a noun like that, it's just like, I don't think we know, like you said, what that means or how to get there. But if I say to you, how's your relationship with yourself? How do you talk to yourself? What do you do when you make a mistake? Are you kind to yourself? Do you kick yourself when you're down? Now we can have a lot of awareness of like how we are speaking to ourselves. And that's something we can actually work on concretely. Mm. 
Well, that definition of self-love feels really true and really good. And I guess the call to action would be using our creativity to be a little kinder to ourselves today. Yeah. Ah, you are a gem. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for all the work you do in the world to help women and all people just love themselves a little bit more and get free. I really appreciate you and who you are. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening and thanks to my guest, Cara Lowenthal. For more info on Cara, follow her at Cara Lowenthal and visit her website, unfuckyourbrain.com, where you can learn more about Cara's coaching community, The Clutch, her podcast, Unfuck Your Brain, and much more. Thanks to Rachel Fulton for helping edit this episode. Follow her at Rachel M. Fulton. Thank you to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. When you post, tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag the guest at Cara Lowenthal so she can share as well. My wish for you this week is you start creating some new thought patterns. Take your most recurring negative thought and try thinking something different. Use the tools that Cara taught us today. I'll try it too and we can report back on how it's going. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.